The scripture reading this morning is from Romans 9, beginning at the sixth verse. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray together. Such is our confidence through Christ towards you, Father. Not that I am sufficient in myself or we as listeners are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, from you, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, and the Spirit gives life. So, Father, please, in and through all the words, all the letter, as it were, would you, by your Spirit, move in power now? Would you awaken the dead? Would you give eyes to the blind and ears to the deaf? Would you heal and reconcile and humble and encourage and restore? And would you grant the mind and the heart of all your people to stretch so that imponderables may fit inside us today. For the glory of your name, Father, we would not be left to ourselves, either in preaching or in hearing. Come. Through Christ I pray. Amen. The condemnation of Israel the unbelief and condemnation of the Jews in our day and Paul's day is a crisis for every believer. Can we trust the promises of God? Verse 3 of chapter 9, Paul with anguish and with sorrow and with tears says, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, are cut off from Christ. They are accursed. They are perishing. And then to heighten 
and intensify the crisis. He says in verse 4, they are Israelites. To them belong the covenants, the promises, the sonship. And they're lost. This is the crisis that creates Romans 9 to 11. Has the word of God fallen? Can the promises of Romans 8 stand? Does the Christian hope have any validity if Jews are accursed and cut off from Christ? The promised, covenanted, sonship people. And his answer in verse 6, No, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why not? The next half of the verse gives the answer. Because they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, the promises of God hold for true Israel. Within Israel, there is a spiritual Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Those who are not Israel in Israel are not beneficiaries of the promise. Those who are in Israel as the true Israel are always beneficiaries of the promise and therefore the word of God never fails because they were the intended recipients. That's the argument. He says it two more times. Verse 7, Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. There are children within the children. He says it a third time in verse 8. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are regarded or reckoned as seed or descendants. Three times there is an Israel within ethnic Israel. There are true children among Abraham's children. These true children are the children of God, the children of promise, not because of the flesh, but because of God's supernatural, sovereign reckoning that they be so. And therefore, these will be saved and the promises of God have not fallen and never will fail. And therefore, Romans 8 stands. That's the argument. The support for the argument comes in two Old Testament illustrations. The first I looked at last week, and I assume Tom did too. And the second we will look at this week. Let me review the illustration of Isaac and Ishmael. Verse 9. This is the word of promise. At this time, God says, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That's the point of that. There's an Ishmael and an Isaac. Not yet. Ishmael is born of human resources. Abraham bailing God out of his pickle because God said, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky and bless the nations. And his wife is barren and he is old. So what do you do? You get a concubine. You sleep with her. You have a baby. Now, God, your promise can come true. That is a child of the flesh and not a child of promise. Why? Because the promise says at this time, 
I, God Almighty, will come to Sarah, barren, Abraham old, and I will make my child be born. The point here is this. God, within the offspring of Abraham, decides sovereignly by his power who will be the child of promise and who will be a child of God. Isaac, not Ishmael. Now, today's illustration is Jacob and Esau, not Isaac and Ishmael. And it takes us farther because it's a more remarkable illustration, still illustrating that God within Israel chooses freely, unconditionally, the children of God, who are not just children of flesh. Verse 10. Let's look at it together. Not only this, in other words, not only is there the illustration of Isaac and Ishmael, not only this, but there was Rebecca. She's the wife of Isaac. There was Rebecca when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Let's stop there. What is he doing in those words? Twins by one man. What's the point of that? There are two things there that make Jacob and Esau in her womb a more compelling illustration of unconditional election than Ishmael and Isaac were. The first difference is this. They're in the same womb. You see how Paul draws that out. They are twins. They're in the same womb. He's minimizing distinctions. Ishmael and Isaac were in different wombs. They weren't twins. There is no great distinction here. That's the point. When God chooses, it will not be on the basis of human distinction. Here's the second point. Namely, Conceived by one man. What do those words mean? Why does he say conceived by one man? How many men can you be conceived by? The point is, Ishmael and Isaac had different mothers. And someone very likely who wanted to continue to argue that election is based on some human distinctive of Jewishness would say, Oh, of course, Ishmael wasn't chosen to be the heir. His mother was a Gentile. And Paul's response to that is, you totally missed the point. And I will correct your misunderstanding with another illustration These babies were in one womb conceived by the same parents. That's the point. It's to remove every possible human ground for election. 
That's the point. The whole stress is to show that within Israel, within the descendants of Abraham, within the descendants of Isaac, God makes sovereign, unconditional choices for his own. And then he makes it crystal clear in verse 11, leaving us no doubt what the point of the illustration is. For though the twins were not yet born, And had done nothing good or evil or bad. Now skip to the main clause in verse 12. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. What's the point? The point of Genesis 25, 23 is God decides the destiny of Jacob and Esau and the peoples flowing from them. Before they're born or had done anything to show a distinction by which they might win the election of God. God chooses who will be subservient to whom before they had done anything to merit it at all. They had done nothing good or bad. Paul is laboring to help us see God chooses unconditionally. That's the point of this paragraph. And it is crystal clear. The doctrine of unconditional election is here, probably more clearly than anywhere else in the Bible, though it is many other places in the Bible. It was not their behavior. It was not their attitude. It was not their faith. It was not their parents. God chose them on the basis of God, not them. The choice was unconditional and it was rooted in God alone, not man. Now, let's pause here and make sure that you in your mind And heart are not jumping to unwarranted and unbiblical conclusions. This teaching in Romans 9 does not contradict the truth that Jacob and Esau made choices in their lives and were held accountable for those choices. This teaching of unconditional election to salvation and damnation does not contradict the truth in the Bible that you and I do make voluntary decisions for and against the gospel for which we are held accountable. If Jacob is saved, it will be Saved by faith. And if Esau is finally condemned, he will be condemned for his evil deeds and his unbelief. Our final judgment will accord with the way we have responded to the gospel in this life, which means that our final entry into heaven or hell is not unconditional. Let's say that again. 
our final entry into heaven or hell is not unconditional. To be saved, we must have believed. And to be finally lost, we must have sinned and not believed. No one will stand on the precipice of hell and say, I do not deserve this. Just one text to illustrate that point. Romans 2, 7 and 8. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. In other words, unconditional election does not contradict the necessity of the obedience of faith for salvation in the end and the disobedience of unbelief for damnation in the end. What unconditional election does is knock from underneath salvation every ground of human boasting. And replaces it with the unshakable, electing love and purpose of God. The will to believe is saving. And the will not to believe is damning. And we are held responsible for both. But underneath both is God's free Unconditional election of who will be saved and who will not. The elect believe, the non-elect do not believe. We are not sovereign. We are not self-determining. We are not autonomous beings. God alone is. How God renders certain the belief and unbelief of men without undermining their accountability, I do not fully understand. Say that again. How God renders certain the belief of the elect and the unbelief of the non-elect, I do not fully understand. If you were hoping for mystery, you got it. If this stretches your mind to the breaking point, I say, better your mind be broken than the scriptures. And even better yet would be, let your mind and heart grow to embrace all that the Bible teaches. Rather than broken. So. With that clarification, let's look at verse 13. After saying in verse 12 that God determines the destiny of Jacob and Esau before they were born or had done anything good or bad, he supports this from the Old Testament, quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Just as it is written... 
Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What did Paul see in these words in Malachi chapter 1 that justifies his using them to support the unconditional election of Jacob over Esau in the womb before they had done anything good or evil? Now, Malachi is an easy book to find, and I want you to go there with me, lest you think I'm making any of this up. Malachi is just before Matthew. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find the beginning of the New Testament, you can find Malachi. It's the book just before the beginning of the New Testament. And go with me to Malachi chapter 1. I want you to see what Paul saw. Paul was the greatest expositor of the Old Testament that has ever lived, bar none, save Jesus. If you want to see things in the Old Testament that you will be amazed by and are really there, study Paul's handling of texts like these. So here we are now at Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. Let's start reading. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And then God answers. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Do you see how God is arguing for his love for Jacob? They say, how have you loved us? And he answers with a most remarkable question. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? Now think on this with me. How have you loved us, Israel? And he comes back. Wasn't Esau your brother? What's the point? It's exactly Paul's point. This is where Paul learned his doctrine. Wasn't Esau your brother? You wonder how I love you? Wasn't he your brother? Do you get it? Paul got it. In other words, he was in the same womb. If anybody deserved to be ahead of you, it was him. Because he was older. He was your brother. And I didn't choose him. You were equally deserving, namely zero, of my choice. And I set my electing love upon you, not him. That's how I've loved you. Oh, Bethlehem. Oh, Bethlehem. Until we grasp the free and unconditional electing love of God, 
we will not understand or experience what it means fully to be loved by God. These words are not in Malachi 1 and Romans 9 for you to stumble over. They are here for you to learn the answer to the question, How have you loved me? And I pray, oh, how I pray, you will go away from this service with a fresh, new, deep, trembling wonder answer to the question, how have I been loved? The whole point is, I chose you. That's how you've been loved. Now, what does it mean? But Esau, I hated. And I suggest that you put aside all speculations, all preconceptions. Don't run over to the Gospels and say, oh, it means love less. It can't mean love less. can't mean love less because it says, I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. can't mean love less. Put away all preconceptions here and zero in on the context of Malachi and the context of nine. And let us add no words, but just what's here. Now, I see the answer in Malachi one, three and four. And let's read these and let this define what the hate of God for Esau means. It says. Verse three, I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom, that's another name for Esau, the people, though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory. And the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. There are two meanings, as I see, for God's hatred for Esau in these words. The first you see in the word wicked. Notice, men will call them the wicked Territory. I have hated Esau, I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory. In other words, God gives them up to wickedness. This is very important in view of what I said earlier about final condemnation not being unconditional. Final condemnation is not unconditional. God does not bring judgments upon an innocent Esau. Edom was judged as wicked. When God passed over Esau and chose Jacob before they were born and had done anything good or evil, there was no decree that an innocent Esau would be judged. Rather, 
what God decreed was to pass by Esau, withhold from him his electing love, give him up to wickedness, and as he acted in this wickedness, he was accountable and deserved his punishment and God's indignation, which leads to the second meaning of hate. Verse 4, men will call them the wicked territory and people toward whom the Lord is indignant or angry forever. You could say there's a, a passive and an active meaning for God's hate. At the beginning, passively, he passes over Esau, withholding from him his decisive electing love and hands him over to wickedness, to the becoming wicked. And then actively, as Esau lives, Accountably, in this wickedness, God hates that. So actively, God is angry with this wickedness forever. If Esau is finally condemned, he will be condemned for his wickedness. And he will not say, I do not deserve condemnation. His own sins will shut his mouth. On the last day. And we, I pray, standing at a distance, will tremble in unspeakable wonder that we were chosen for no reason in us at all, but sheer sovereign. Undeserved grace. O Bethlehem, be careful here. Be careful you do not play God and tell him how he should save. How many people dictate to God what he can do. Be careful, Bethlehem, lest you stand above Scripture and demand that it be one way and not another, as one commentator I read so quickly blew it away and said, this cannot mean this, period, and then constructed an artificial interpretation. Be careful, Bethlehem, lest you assume that you are good enough to measure the goodness of God. Be careful, Bethlehem, lest you feel wise enough to judge the wisdom of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. And the things that are revealed to us and to our children. How does Romans 9 to 11 end? Oh, the depth 
of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and how inscrutable are his judgments. Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to be his counselor? Or who has ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. And if we ask, why? Why, God, do you choose to save by means of unconditional election? This chapter gives answers. God is not opposed to humble, aching, tearful questions. And the answers of this chapter will take you farther in your quest than many of you are willing to go. And one of the answers is in verse 11. Let's read it. Why? Why choose your own child of God, your own child of promise, before they are born or had done anything good or evil? Answer. So that God's purpose, according to his choice or according to election, would stand. Not because of works but because of him who calls. And that is next week's text. Because when I got to this point, I thought, no way, no way can I put that in the last five minutes of this sermon. That's too precious. That's too powerful. That's too Ultimate, And I hope what you see at least this week is this. Do you see the connection between my purpose will stand in verse 11 and his word has not fallen in verse 6? Do you see what's at stake in the doctrine of unconditional election? I do it this way because I want Romans 8 to stand. And if I do not take the initiative in the universe, in history, in Christ, on the cross, in the resurrection, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in conversion, it will be fragile. Man will be sovereign. It depends not upon us, but upon God who calls. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory. The creation of the universe, the history of redemption, the coming of Christ into the world at Christmas time, his perfect life, his death as a lamb slain, perfect for sinners, his resurrection from the grave, his intercession at the Father's right hand, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the 
effectual working of God upon our lives so that Jesus can say, blessed are you for you see and blessed are you for you hear. All of that happens for the glory of God. And so I pray that your response to this would be with the psalmist. Oh, God, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your word. And when you have beheld the wonder of being loved freely, unconditionally, before you were born or did anything good or evil, then banish fear from your life and lay it down to bring people into this experience. Like Kristen who got on the plane Friday and went to Zambia.